Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is Steve Lawler, who's the president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association. And uh, we did not talk about his background. He's a native of Greenville, North Carolina, and uh, a 1982 graduate of the Citadel. But he also had a long and interesting career in the uh, in the United States Army and the Army Reserve. How has that uh, enabled you to be uh, perhaps more valuable to the hospital association? What experiences did you have there that have been uh, that you've been able to carry over into your present duties? Boy, is that such a great question? So, you know, first and foremost, I, I was really fortunate when. Um, I graduated from the Citadel and was commissioned as a second lieutenant to be branched medical service corps. So when I graduated, I, I went into the, the military as a healthcare administrator. Um, so, you know, I, you know, right off the bat, you know, had the opportunity to, to run and lead, you know, individuals that were caring for folks. And many times it's kind of like in that MASH environment that we all remember watching uh, Alan Alda and his uh you know, his colleagues, uh, you know, provide medical care in a combat zone. But I think the, the really important lessons learned really came to bear during the pandemic, which was the closest thing to combat operations that I've ever seen. And, you know, it, it allowed me to, you know, appreciate how important resilience is and how important developing a cadence for staff to support them becomes so, um, you know, serving in the army is, 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 it's a, you know, it's, it's an experiment in leadership and they give, they gave me, you know, opportunities early on to, to, to lead and, and solve problems. They gave me opportunities to, to, to mess things up and learn from those things. Um, and then it tells it teaches you how to lead and just love and appreciate all different kinds of people. You know, most of my units from being a platoon leader to, you know, I've been a commander of a 300 bed hospital. Um, you know, the thing that's beautiful about the military and it's like healthcare in general, um, the people that work there come from all different backgrounds and places. And what unites them is this um, commitment to a mission and commitment to each other to do good work. And in healthcare today, that's what unites people. It's the, this commitment to others to work as a team for the betterment of patients and communities. So I think some good lessons there, but I think um, I was running a hospital in Eastern North Carolina during Hurricane Floyd and Bertha when we had those series of, of hurricanes. So I had some experience dealing with, um, you know, with situations that are pretty austere and, and high tempo. And that certainly helped during the pandemic as well. There is an interesting thing in North Carolina. Of course, a lot of states have similar problems, but probably not quite as extensive as the problem in North Carolina, because we have the really affluent areas that are growing just by leaps and bounds. Uh, the research triangle area, Charlotte, Greensboro, uh, the immediate area around Greenville, the immediate area around Wilmington and Nashville. But then we have, and so all that is in about 20 or 25 counties. Then we have 75 other counties, and some of them are rather isolated. Some of them are small with populations, the total population of less than 5,000. 
So that means we've got larger and uh, smaller hospitals. What are the differences between the larger and community hospitals when it comes to the problems that they face? Sure. I mean, that's a great question. And I've had I've had the privilege of, of, of leading one of our smallest hospitals in the state in, in Bertie County. Um, and then I led the one of the busiest hospitals in the state in, in Greenville, which is now uh, a thousand bed hospital. Um, so, you know, other than scale and, and people think that, you know, just the, the only thing that's different between a large hospital and a small hospital is just the number of beds and staff. Um, I mean, the significant differences are, are one, just access to resources. You know, small hospitals have, you know, wonderful staff that are committed. Many of them wear different hats. So, you know, one of the challenges is just for small hospitals is just access to resources um, and, and expertise. And they get around that and, and address that by, you know, using, you know, technology. Many of our small hospitals have um, fiber optic lines with large medical centers and trauma centers to help them take care of patients when they walk through the door. So they leverage technology. Many of them have clinical relationships with uh, with large health systems or academic practices where they have experts that can come down to their hospital a few days a week and, and, and provide care for patients. So working together on access to care to solve problems. Um, and then, you know, I, I think the challenges that small hospitals have in many cases are similar to the large ones, you know, workforce is always a challenge and workforce in, you know, several different spaces. So um, recruiting physicians to small hospitals is, you know, can be a challenge. The days of Marcus Welby or um, my friend Charles Sawyer up in Ahoski, who grew up there, went to medical school and came back, um, you know, those days are gone. So they're competing with large systems and beautiful communities like Raleigh, Charlotte, Wilmington, et cetera, for, you know, for physicians and they're competing for their families as well. So, you know, that that's a task. And I think the, the advantage that small hospitals have, if there is an advantage, is that when that physician gets to that community, not only is that person instantly an influencer within that community, but you know, that individual has an opportunity to influence change at a much greater speed and rate that somebody would be able to do in a, in a large facility. You know, the other thing that small hospitals are disadvantaged by is, you know, when they go negotiate a contract for goods or services, or they negotiate with a managed care company like Blue Cross Blue Shield, Cigna, or United, I mean, they're always price takers. I mean, they're, they're not in a position of strength when they're negotiating. So in many cases, their reimbursement is lower um, than, you know, their um, friend down the street that happens to be in an urban community. So, you know, that that at times can create uh, create issues. And then finally, um, you know, just, you know, their ability to kind of weather a financial storm um, is certainly not as great as some of the larger health systems. They typically have smaller balance sheets. And over the past three or four years, hospitals have been dipping into their savings account just to pay the bills. Um, so, you know, financial health and financial stability um, becomes an issue as well. 
Now, Medicaid expansion and this additional federal Medicaid payment support is going to go a long way, but it's also going to require, you know, community hospitals to think differently about, you know, how they align and then how they deploy their services. And, you know, that's an exciting prospect for small hospitals because in many cases, their relationship with their community is much more intimate than a large system. Now, for large systems, I mean, they've got, and, and, and you know, I'll, I'll just end, you know, North Carolina, you know, has a male distribution of physician talent. Most of our physicians are in urban areas and, and, and cities uh, with, you know, lots of communities that are small and rural, you know, you know, lacking an adequate number of primary care physicians. Now, we're blessed in North Carolina to have some of the best medical schools in the country that are focusing on primary care. So we need to continue to support them and, and help them. For, you know, large health systems, um, you know, some of the struggles they have is their cost structure is, you know, very different. They're not, you know, these are not lean organizations. These are organizations that are built to take care of a large service area. So, you know, Wake Med's trauma program, for an example, um, is extraordinarily expensive, as is Duke or UNC. And running a, tra a trauma program um, does not, you know, pay the bills. And in fact, you know, I think only 40% of what that hospital does, that big medical center, actually pays the bills. And that has to help subsidize 60% of the mission-based services that are out there. So teaching programs, we've again, I mentioned we have some, some of the best teaching programs in the country. It's incredibly expensive to run a teaching program. And, you know, hospitals that are teaching residents and fellows or next generation of workforce, um, you know, they're getting cents on the dollar of support to run these programs. You know, doing research and looking for new and innovative cures for disease or new therapies and approaches to caring for folks is expensive. And again, that requires a subsidy. So their structure based on what they do and what they provide is, you know, is very different, but it, it's a very expensive structure that in many cases, people that are paying the bills don't recognize that. And therefore they're not paying a, a premium to help support some of those, um, you know, higher end, extraordinarily expensive services. You know, they also have the same um, challenges and issues that, you know, every hospital and every provider in the country have in regards to workforce. We are seeing the workforce market, you know, start to improve. Um, but, you know, there's there's lots of work to do um, in that space. And then finally, um, our large hospitals are full. So I was speaking to a CEO the other day and, and trying to help uh an individual that called me that was looking for help, um, you know, get transferred to a big tertiary hospital. And the fact is, is they had 60 patients waiting in the ED to be admitted. So in many cases, our, you know, hallmark hospitals like Duke or UNC or ECU Health or Mission HCA in, uh, um, in, in Asheville, I mean, they're operating nearly at 100% capacity all the time. And, you know, that just takes a toll on on staff. And yeah. so, you know, adequate staffing is, is, is super important 
to make sure that those patients are safe and get the best care, um, but also have the best service. But again, I've worked at both large and small. I've loved them both. They all have their own unique issues. But the fact is, is that whether or not you've got 300 employees or whether or not you've got 30,000 employees, I mean, everyone is showing up every day um, with the intent to provide the best care and support that they can. Um, and it's one of the things I I love about healthcare is, uh, you know, I love the people who have who have chosen to, to be in healthcare and, and serve others. We saw it at its best during the pandemic where, you know, people were coming to work in, in the most difficult times, um, in the most challenging times, taking care of incredibly sick patients. And they were sleeping in the hospital. You know, when their shift was over, they stayed there because they didn't want to go home and expose their family. So, um, you know, what heroic people. And I mean, for me, it's an immense blessing to be able to, you know, serve and support them. Well, uh, and of course, the thing I've noticed more about hospitals that have changed maybe in the last 30 years is all hospitals seem to be far more concerned about the patient experience than perhaps they were in the 50s and 60s and that era. Uh, And so patient experience is important to hospitals. Uh, I don't have enough time to uh, ask you another question in this segment because uh, I wouldn't be giving you enough time to give a good and sufficient answer. So let me just say this. We've got one more segment coming up. We want to talk about prescription prices. We probably also want to talk about research hospitals if we have time and how important that is to uh, bringing in a lot of federal dollars to help with those projects. Our guest is Steve Lawler. He's the president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association, which is, uh, as we said, is formally called the North Carolina Hospital Association. And we're going to take a break. And when we come back, as I said, we'll turn to those other issues. Okay, men, this is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're going to go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you going to do? You're going to go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You got to dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. No, you won't. Because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world, your family, and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org slash caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our topic this week is health care. And to lead us in that discussion, we have invited Steve Lawler, 
who's the president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association, uh, which is essentially the North Carolina Association for Hospitals. It's an organization that has, I think you said, a, I think believe 60 hospitals across the state, and it's also one that has a over 100-year history. I believe you said 103 years, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Let's talk about prescription prices because that not only affects people outside the hospital, but it affects the cost in the hospitals. And this seems to be a major concern of a lot of folks. Uh, We have seen uh, things like uh, the cost of insulin, which is an old drug skyrocket uh, for no apparent reason. Uh, and uh, Or maybe there is an apparent reason, and you can tell me what it is. But I'm sure that the hospitals are concerned about prescription prices. So tell us where we are, and are we making any progress in bringing this cost down? Sure. So uh, I think everyone would agree that uh, the cost of drugs and pharmaceuticals, you know, extraordinarily expensive. And, uh, you know, for hospitals and health systems, it, it uh, you know, it becomes a challenge to, to manage that spend. I mean, the, the average cost increase year over year for drugs and pharmaceuticals is about 18% per year. So that's what it's growing at in regards to just, uh, you know, cost growth year over year. I think the other thing that influences that is, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies spend more on marketing than they do research. So, you know, they're marketing all of their new drugs and, and, uh, and therapeutics. So when patients show up at their doctor's office, you know, they've already decided what they want. And many times what's being marketed are, are these drugs that are like incredibly expensive. So for hospitals and health systems, some of the things that they do um, is one, you know, we, we work really hard to use generic drugs. And within the electronic medical record that hospitals and health systems use, um, you know, they embed in that electronic medical record those choices for doctors to, to pick as they're prescribing a medication. And, you know, the first choice is always going to be the least, least expensive drug. And if there's a, a, a clinical reason why that patient needs a, a different medication, then they have to kind of fill in a justification to do that. So, you know, using, you know, using generics, uh, as you know, the, the the first choice, you know, helps reduce the cost of drugs. You know, the other thing we do is, you know, in many hospitals, we have pharmacists that are rounding in the morning and the afternoon with physicians. So looking at the medications that a patient happens to be on, and then making sure that they work together as a care team to ensure that that patient's on the right meds, um, but also medications that uh, that patient can manage once they leave the hospital. And in many cases, we're reducing the number of medications that a patient is on and right-sizing those meds. So when they go home, they're able to afford those and they're able to participate in caring for themselves after discharge. Uh, You know, we also support this federal program called the 340B program, which is a federal program that requires pharmaceutical companies to offer discounts on the price of drugs to hospitals and health systems and clinics um, that are providing, you know, a disproportionately higher share of care to Medicaid, Medicare, and underinsured. So it's essentially a social compact um, that's been created by CMS and supported by the federal government that requires pharmaceutical companies to offer discounts 
to hospitals that are taking care of, you know, the under underserved. And that's a, a it's a great program because it costs taxpayers nothing. And it does require the pharmaceutical companies to to be good stewards and be good community partners. Um, but, you know, this is an, an every day. There are millions of prescriptions that are filled every day in hospitals throughout our state. And I, I want to get back and ask you to follow up on that one thing, because that is very disturbing to know that they spend more money on marketing than they do on research. Uh, because I, I, the thing that bothers me about that, and I'd like your comments on that, is if a patient decides from reading or hearing about a particular med in, a, in an ad that is obviously designed to get them interested, and they go to their doctor and they ask for it. It's very hard for a doctor to turn them down, even That's if it doesn't, it doesn't okay. think it's necessarily in their best interest. Yeah, between that and the internet, I mean, people have self-diagnosed and self-treated by the time they go to the doctor. So yeah, um, that is a problem. And, um, you know, a physician is always going to um, try to, you know, advise that patient um, to take, you know, or to offer that medication that is most effective, but also that's, you know, in the best interest of the, of, of the patient. Now, many pharmaceutical companies offer discount programs for individuals and they can apply for those, but it doesn't apply to everyone. It only applies to, um, you know, those that meet uh, that pharmaceutical company's criteria. Um, and I'm not familiar with what that criteria is, but, you know, they're not extending that discount to everyone. So it, it is a challenge. Um, and again, as you said, when, when, it, when a patient or family shows up and, and you know, they've been watching TV and, you know, this particular drug, everyone looks happy on the commercial, it must be for me. Um, it is hard to tell them that, uh, you know, an alternative is a better solution for them. Well, it's, uh, you know, I put, we're in the business, we're in the advertising business, but it, it bothers me that, uh, so much is spent in, in marketing and I, I hope it, uh, because that, that's bound to affect the price of prescriptions in a, in a negative way. Uh, was there any reason why the price of insulin rose so dramatically? I mean, my my sense is, is that, you know, the, I mean, these are businesses. And sadly, you know, I think without oversight or regulation, um, you know, they're they're left to their um, their, you know, own uh, motivation to determine, you know, what pricing should, should be. But again, in, in North Carolina, the majority of people on insulin are poor people. The majority of people that are on insulin are people in, in, in rural communities. That's where, you know, type two diabetes and stroke and hypertension are most prevalent. Um, so, it, you know, I think it was, you know, certainly not the right decision. I think it was a decision based on, you know, personal benefit versus public benefit. And, you know, thankfully they got called out on that. Well, there are medicines that are lifetime medicines. And of course, the, the drug companies know this. And when they when you have a medicine that requires you to be on it for the rest of your life, uh, you're at the whim of the, the pricing. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, and, and when you look at when you look at health plan spend, um, you know, we offer health insurance to our employees, much like every other business. And when we look at what we're spending money on, um, you know, our cost of drugs year over year is certainly higher than, you know, the 
you know, the average cost increase of, of healthcare utilization. So again, um, you know, when you look at, you know, just the average increase in the cost of drugs year over year for hospitals and health systems, you know, it's around 18%. And, uh, um, you know, those costs in many cases are passed on to, to patients. Oh, uh, we got our time is coming to a conclusion, but I did want to get your view on any legislation, both nationally and on the state level, that uh, the North Carolina Healthcare Association is watching and ad advocating for. Sure. So, uh, you know, at the state level, I mean, our you know our next big dot uh, you know objective is going to you know is going to be behavioral health. I mean, we're going to be fully supportive of whatever our elected officials. Uh, um, you know, choose to support financially, and we're going to be working with them and others to just improve, um, you know, mental health throughout the state. So I think that's a big dot issue for us in, in North Carolina. Um, you know, we want to, you know, focus on workforce. We want to make it easy for people that are inspired to, to get into a career of healthcare to, to, to get into a program and to have their program paid for. And we have a lot of hospitals and health systems are doing creative things to do just that. So workforce and, and, and creating, you know, a safe, safe space for, uh, for hospitals, for both staff, visitors, and patients. At the federal level, you know, we're continuing to, to work to support that 340B program that I talked about that requires pharmaceutical companies to be uh, good community partners and to help, you know, help cover the cost of the poor and or, or underinsured. Um, there's legislation, you know, currently that uh, looks at something called um, site neutral payment. And what CMS intends to do is to pay for services in physicians offices or hospitals that are the same, um, you know, pay the same rate. And, and the fact is, is that patients that are going to hospitals for infusion therapy or any kind of outpatient care, especially in cancer, are usually more complex and have greater needs and need the additional infrastructure and support that hospitals offer. So, you know, our, you know, we're lobbying and advocating for the fact that, you know, those places that require greater competency, skill, and resources should be paid differently because patients who go there need that complex care. Um, you know, we're also advocating uh, at the federal level um, for the same kind of parity from a payment perspective for telehealth and, and other services. And we talked about the importance of telehealth in our lessons learned from COVID. I think finally, just working with our elected officials in DC um, to make sure that physicians and hospitals are, are paid fairly. So, you know, this past year, the rate of inflation for, for healthcare, you know, somewhere between around 15%. And at the height of the, uh, you know, the, the, you know, we'll call it almost recession, um, you know, the cost of goods and services and talent were up 20%. Um, in the most recent uh, announcement by CMS, I mean, they're offering a 2% increase for physicians in, in payment. And if your costs are up 20% and CMS is offering a 2% increase for Medicare patients, we have doctors that can't pay their bills um, and we have hospitals that uh, that are struggling. So, you know, advocating for for reasonable, um, you know, financial support so people can stay in business and be there for patients and families, supremely important. And then finally, 
you know, we're working on workplace safety and, you know, there's legislation and, and conversations in D.C. that would um, make assaulting a healthcare worker um, equivalent to assaulting a, um, a, a somebody who works for the airline. Um, so, you know, right now, you know, people in airlines have greater protection than people in healthcare. Um, you know, we're asking for parity in that space too, to make sure that uh, there's a disincentive for people to uh, to commit acts of violence within the hospital. Steve, thank you so much for that. That's a great summary of what the legislation is. I love the term behavioral health instead of mental health. I, I would love to see that adopted. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong. And if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can do so by going to carolinanewsmakers.com. And you can hear the entire broadcast or just the segments that you might have missed. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. We'll be back again next week. We'll look forward to seeing you there. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.